0: If you have a Bible, open up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. As you're opening there, go ahead and stand with me, if you would, out of reverence, for the reading of the words of our God. James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way That as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. and Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, I pray even now that you would open our hearts and minds, God, to receive your word. Father, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a quarrelsome world. And that is, everywhere you turn, somebody somewhere is fighting. Whether it's in on the interstate or in the parking lot at the mall, or whether it's videos you see of people getting mad about different things, whether it be masks or whatever else, or just turning on the news, watching the news. I, I talk about this. You can't even watch Sports Center without people yelling at each other anymore. We live in a quarrelsome world, but I ask you the question today, what is the source of a quarrelsome life? You see, I think we're so used to all the fighting that we think it's okay for us to be quarrelsome as well. But I want you to know you can't blame the world for your quarrelsomeness. You, you can't blame the world for your irascibility. You, you can't blame the world for your propensity for fighting. The source is somewhere else. Why is it we love the world? Why is our repentance so cold? This morning, as we seek to understand this text, I think we'd be good, we would be wise to hear a voice from the past. The 18th century theologian, perhaps America's greatest theologian, was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote a book that I read years ago called The Religious Affections. And in that book, Jonathan Edwards defines the religious affections. He says the affections are this, not necessarily even the religious ones, all sorts of the affections of the heart are this, vigorous and sensible exercises. All right, That is stuff you do or things you feel or the way you exercise, the inclination of the will and the soul. That is your affections, if you think about your mind and your soul, you're, you're able to do two things with your mind. One, you're able to understand things with your mind, right? You gain understanding with your mind. You understand things. The other thing you do, though, is you evaluate those understandings, and it gives you an inclination. Your mind helps you decide what you want to do. And so what the Bible calls passions that are at war within us are a part of these affections. These inclinations that we all have toward or against that which our mind has understood. Passions then are even baser than the affections. They're those things that come upon us suddenly or more intensely. They're often related to part of what it means for us to be in our bodies. And So I would argue that most of what the Bible calls our passions have to do and have their root in money, sex, or power. Those things that help us satisfy our basest desires. That which we need to keep us from being hungry, money, power, and sex. The scripture teaches us that when we are quarrelsome and we're fighting on the outside, that's because there's a war that's happening on the inside. And that's the war that each and every one of us is fighting with our passions. Those base desires that... That come with the territory of being a person. Any of you, let me put it like this: If any of you ever been hangry, anybody ever been hangry before? Do y'all know what I mean by hangry? It's when you're so hungry you get angry. You guys been there before? I think you have, haven't you? I think that's part of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about our passions. And, and when, when we think about our affections, those things which we're inclined to or not inclined to, we're constantly evaluating in our hearts and minds what it is we should do. And the Bible says there's something in you, a desire, an appetite, what Edwards calls the affections, a passion that helps you evaluate and decide what it is you'll do. And James tells us those passions are at war within us. Those passions are at war within us. Now, you know that to which I speak. You've experienced it in different times in your life. If you've ever been jealous over someone you love, you know what I speak of. If you've ever been hangry, like I mentioned a moment ago, you know what I speak of. If you've ever been jealous to the point of rage, you know what I speak of. Our passions are at war within us. So this morning, I want to show you four truths that I think are going to help you overcome your prideful passions, put put to death your prideful passions, and help you develop, I would argue, Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Godly affections. That is, I want to help you, and James is going to help you develop an inclination toward godliness, a desire for godliness, a propensity for godliness, whereas we are naturally bent away from godliness. Our affections lead us away from God naturally. By the power of the Word, we can be transformed. And I think this text will help you overcome these prideful passions and be inclined toward Jesus. Four points this morning to help you do that. Help you understand that. Here's the first. Prideful passions produce a sour life. Prideful passions produce a sour life. Verses one and two. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Is it not this that your passions are at war? Within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You desire, the Bible says, and do not have, so you murder. You see, this is the core truth of a life of covetousness. I mean, this is the absolute mantra of the coveter the one who is covetous. It's the idea that God's blessings are a zero-sum game. And so there may be some of you in the room right now who feel like God has not given you all that you deserve. You're already in a dangerous place, okay? It's already a dangerous place to be spiritually. But then you've upped the ante, and not only are you frustrated with God, but on top of that, you've begun to covet what your neighbor has. And so when you look and you see that God has blessed your neighbor in a way that does not equal the way you fight you've been blessed, you then begin to resent and covet what your neighbor has, assuming that God blessed them instead of blessing you. And so you go from simply being frustrated with God to being mad about everything. And we, you can see it in families. You can see it in churches. You can see it in workplaces. This sort of heart produces fighting and quarrelsomeness and an inability to be peaceful. So we begin to hate those who have because we have not. James says it leads to murder. Now, I I don't think... Uh, this is written in general to churches. It seems like this is not. This is for churches in the dispersion. It's for all over. So I don't think this is like something like a letter to the Corinthians, where when something like this is mentioned, it's a literal murder happened in the church. I, that probably would have gotten its own letter. I think, right? But the principle's true. Even though I don't think necessarily murder happened in the church, you begin to hate. And according to Jesus, those who hate their brother in their hearts are the equivalent of murderers. But I think it's also we see literally true in the world around us. It can lead there. Hate in your heart and this sort of covetousness can lead to actual murder. Don't we see that? Not only in our own society, but in the pages of Scripture. Wasn't the first murder... A murder of covetousness when Cain killed Abel. You covet, James goes on and says, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see this, don't you? The way, don't you see the way that sex and money and power, these core passions produce this sort of quarrelsome life? Don't you see the way that so many fights in the world and wars in the world center around these things? Even pagan literature shows the way that these things bring quarrelsomeness and fighting and murder into the world. But this is the first step that we must take if we're going to fight the passions of our flesh and we're going to reorient our affections away from these passions and and turn them into authentic Christ-like affections. We have to see their source and we have to see their fruit. And you may wonder, why is it that I can't seem to find peace why is it I can't seem to be happy when other people are happy? Why is it I can't rejoice with those who rejoice? Why is it I want to pick a fight when other people have, and I'm upset because I have not? It's because, my friend, your passions are at war within you. Now, so what do you do? Leads well, us start our second point. Where do we start How do we fight this? If we see their source and we see their fruit, what are we supposed to do? Here's the second point this morning. Prideful passions wither through prayer. Prideful passions wither through prayer. Do you see that last little phrase in verse 2? I love it. You have not because you ask not. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. And so right off off the gate in this discussion, James, I think, is pushing us toward prayer. Go to the Lord. You don't have what you need because you're not asking. You want to fight these passions? You want to fight a quarrelsome spirit? You want to fight covetousness? Ask the Lord for what you need. But the coveter might say, this is not fair. This is not fair because, Pastor, you must not have read the next verse. It, it, this is a setup. This is not. For, this is a catch twenty two gotcha that James is getting me in here. You, you might say. Let's look at verse three together. What does he say immediately after that? You do not have because you do not ask. And then what does he say? You ask and do not receive. Exactly. Finally, a verse I like. The coveter says, right. I've been asking all these years and I don't receive. But the Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. What is James trying to say? He says that your prayers are misplaced. He, he says that we ask to spend it on our passions. We ask wrongly. And so if I were a coveter today, and, and I have been in my life at different times, and, and the Lord shows me sins all the time, but if you're given over to this and you're frustrated with your lot in life, you may throw your hands up today and say, What gives? God says I don't have because I don't ask, but then He tells me I'm not even praying right. And that's exactly the point. That's precisely the point that James is making is that your prayers are not being answered so often. Like we all have to teach our children throughout their life. One time one of our kids prayed at night. I said, Lord, I pray you'll give me everything I want. Amen. Now only one figure in the Bible has promised to answer that prayer, and it's not the Lord. It's the devil, isn't it? Now what, what is he saying? The Bible says, Ask me and I'll give you the desires of your heart, right? What is, what is James driving at? The reality is, is that what prayer does, he doesn't lead with, you're not praying right. He leads with, start praying. Right? Because the reality is what prayer does and the way God uses prayer is that prayer begins to reorient our hearts toward the mind and the will of God. God uses prayer as a means to incline our affections toward Him and not toward our flesh. You have not because you ask not, so I would encourage you to start asking. And if you get mad at God because He's not giving you everything you want, it might be because you're asking for the wrong things. And it's through the process of prayer that God is going to change your heart heart to help you see what you need and not just what you want. He encourages the asking even if it is asking wrongly. And so I don't want anyone here to think for a moment that they ought to be paralyzed in prayer because you're afraid you won't pray right. Start praying, and it's through the process of praying that God will teach your heart to pray right. So often, we think about prayer as a means by which we change God's mind and heart, but so often, God uses our prayers to Him to change our mind and heart. My passions are wild, my affections are out of order, I can't pray. That's precisely the moment you must pray. Because God uses prayer to transform our hearts. Fight these passions with prayer. Third of all, there's a warning. There's a warning. You must be careful. When you set out to start fighting these passions and you start set out to start reorienting your affections, there's a warning here. Notice what James says in verses 4 and 5. Do you not know, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us. I want to tell you a warning from the Scripture this morning. When you set out to start finding your passions, you will always find somebody. And some people, even who claim the name of Christ, some people who seem like Mr. Worldly Wise Man, they know everything, they know how to help you, it seems too good to be true because it is, you will find someone who will justify your prideful passions. You'll find somebody who says, And you go to them and you say, I am fighting this tendency and this temptation that I have. And they'll say to you immediately, oh, poor soul, who told you God wasn't pleased with such? Oh, poor soul, look at these very many years where I, the one who is so wise and so perfect, I've been following God all these years and I've never been off with such a sin. Who told you? In fact, the world needs more people like us. One of the great temptations to worldliness and giving in to worldly passions is finding people who will help you justify your sin. But friendship with the world means enmity with God. Now here's what some of you are doing right now. Right now. At this very moment. You are trying to justify your sin by thinking of someone else who's who's committing a kind of sin most of us aren't comfortable with. All the while, we all have our own sins we're very comfortable with. And so we try to wiggle out from conviction. We try to wiggle out from worldliness. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you one way I think we do this is through politics. I know nobody wants to hear that word, church. But this is the reality, that you will even find people, even in your own political party, yes, that one, whatever it may be, who will encourage you and tempt you toward indulging worldliness because the ends of politics is not godliness. Godliness. The ends of politics is worldly power. And I'm not saying Christians ought not to be involved in the political process. I, don't, I think we ought to be. I think you ought to vote. I think you ought to do all those things. But my friends, if we are electing people and getting involved in systems that will fade away at the expense of that which will last forever, are we really living Christian lives? Are we really fighting off prideful passions? The Lord will not allow us to go out and find our identity or our justification or our reason for living anywhere but in Him. The Bible says He yearns jealously for those whom He created. Because He wants to give you joy. He wants to give you joy in something that a regularly scheduled election cycle can never give you. Because kings rise and fall and presidents rise and fall and positions rise and fall and parties rise and fall. But the Gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal. We must reject friendship with the world that helps us find ways to justify the passions of our flesh. And finally, fourth point this morning is this: Prideful passions lose to the gracious gift of humility. Prideful passions lose to the gracious gift of humility. James decides he's got us on the ropes and he's going to hit us harder. What does he say? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. That's good news. Finally, right? Let's come up for air. That's, that's what we want to hear. Thank you. Here comes grace. What does grace look like for James? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I've heard people say, sometimes it feels like the devil is following me around. If it feels like that, it's because you're not resisting him. The Bible says if you resist him, he will flee from you. What does the Bible say? He gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's God's grace to you. It is a grace that allows you to submit to Him and repent of your pride and move forward from your self-centeredness. You see, conviction is God's grace even when it doesn't feel like it. Now James is going to say some things that make us feel weird. Make us feel uncomfortable. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Amen, right? We love that idea. But what does that look like? How does he define this drawing near to God and God drawing near to you? What does he say? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, when you get a glimpse of who God is, and you start drawing near to God, and God starts drawing near to you, this is some of the things that begin to happen You start to see this sort of level of penitence that seems extreme to us. You look at this and you say, man, that's not really how I repent. I don't really weep over my sin. I don't ever feel like, man, I I need to cleanse my hands today. Let me suggest something to you. It may be because you're spending too much time looking at man. You see, the reality is, anytime you find yourself convicted, it's not hard to find somebody you think should be more convicted. And we spend so much time looking at others and holding ourselves up to others. Perhaps you're looking too much at man and not enough at God. You can always, I promise you, you will always find a person or a group to compare yourself to. At least I'm not like those racists or at least I'm not like those rioters or at least I'm not like those people that those sheep that wear masks or at least I'm not like those selfish people who don't or whatever else, whatever sort of insults you want to find, whatever side of the aisle you want to look across, you can always find a group that you can compare yourself to and you can start to say, Oh Lord, thank you for the fact that I am not like those people, sinners like them. And it makes you feel so puffed up and so righteous. But what? you begin to look at the absolute, infinite, total righteousness of a holy God? What if instead of comparing yourself to others, you begin to draw near to God and God begins to draw near to you? You start to realize, I am looking at a holy God and my hands are filthy. I compare myself to others and they seem so clean, but in the eyes of God, I'm filthy. Cleanse your hands, O sinner. You begin to feel the sinfulness of your own heart and you recognize, I need to purify my heart. I'm a sinner. I'm more double-minded than I realize. I think I'm such a good Christian and yet God is so holy and so righteous. We must be wretched Delete our self-righteous social media posts. We must mourn. We must stop laughing at those sinners who are so much worse than us. We must weep and turn our self-righteous fake joy into gloom. When we see the actual, absolute, total holiness of God, we don't act prideful. We humble ourselves before Him. Stop looking at others to try to make yourself feel better and get a real appraisal of what your heart and life is really like by looking at a holy God. And guess what happens? That which you wanted the whole time. That which you wanted the whole time. That joy you were looking for in your fleshly passions. That blessing you longed for that old so-and-so happened to get. That righteousness that you felt that felt so delicious in your mouth and now tastes bitter like gall when you see it compared to the holiness and righteousness of God. You spit it out. And that which your soul longed for the whole time, when you humble yourself before God, you find it there and there alone. Because there is nothing in you to commend yourself before the Lord. But there is perfect righteousness in Him that He gives us through His Son. And notice what the Bible says. You want to be exalted, don't you? And so you try to find blessings for yourself. You want to feel alive. And so you indulge those passions that are warring within you. You you, you want to have. You want to be exalted You want to be better than others. You want to be the best. You want to be high and mighty. And yet when we humble ourselves before God, when we get a real glimpse of His holiness, when we abandon those passions, when we abandon that fake repentance, when we abandon that self-righteousness, what does James say happens? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's not your job. That's the Lord's job. And He will exalt you through the grace and love and righteousness that's been given to you through His Son, not the filthy rags that we bring to the table. And I promise you, I promise you, there is joy and freedom and hope and excitement and love and exhilaration in the exaltation of God that so often looks poor and pitiful and terrible in the eyes of the world. And yet, in the eyes of God, He sees you. And when you are in His Son, and when you put your faith in Jesus, He sees you, and He sees the perfect righteousness of your Son. And so the war may rage on inside. And you may fight every day of your life to humble yourselves before God. But the truth of the matter is that you will be exalted one day by the only one that matters.